Uldrich Zwingli, the father of the Swiss Reformation, was born six weeks after the birth of Martin Luther on January the 1st, 1484, in the village of Wildhaus, high in the Alps, in the Swiss canton of St. Gaul. His father was a wealthy peasant, so it can be said that he was born into the ruling class of this peasant republic. He was 25 years older than John Calvin. Zwingli was a pioneer reformer of the first generation of Protestant reformers. He wrote the first of the Reformed Confessions of Faith, 67 Theses or Conclusions, in 1523. Seven years before the Lutheran Augsburg Confession was written, when John Calvin was only 14 years old, and 13 years before Calvin would write his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Also, Zwingli translated the Bible into German four years before Luther published his German translation. In fact, before Luther answered Erasmus with his own The Bondage of the Will in December 1525, Zwingli had already refuted Erasmus in January of the same year. By 1525, the Reformation was firmly established in Zurich, Switzerland, and from that point it began to spread to the other Swiss cantons and beyond into Germany. As a boy, Zwingli received a humanistic and Roman Catholic education. Early in his life, Zwingli showed remarkable talent as a musician. He learned to play with skill the flute, harp, violin, flute, dulcimer, and hunting horn. During his university days at Basel, he came under the influence of Thomas Wittenbach, whom Zwingli gratefully remembered as having taught him the sole authority of Scripture, the death of Christ as the only price of forgiveness, and the worthlessness of indulgences. His first ministerial appointment began in 1506 in Glaurus as a parish priest when he was 22 years old. It is told that he bought off a rival candidate for the sum of 100 guilders. While there, he immersed himself in all the responsibilities of the pastoral ministry. He also spent a large amount of time in study, reading avidly the old Greek and Roman authors. In order to read the Greek authors, he taught himself Greek and became proficient in this language. During his time here, Zwingli made three trips to Italy with Swiss mercenaries as a result, he came to hate the practice of mercenary fighting and the moral corruptions of the priesthood. In 1515, Zwingli transferred to Einzeldeln, where he lived for three years. While here, he came to see the evil of many Roman Catholic practices, especially the selling of indulgences. Two years before Luther's attack on indulgences, Zwingli was preaching against them and condemning them vehemently from the pulpit. So here you see a man that was already changing things by the grace of God while Calvin was a little boy and before Luther even reached his peak. It was also while he was in Einzeldown that Zwingli met the famous humanist and Roman Catholic critic of the church Erasmus. Now, let me tell you what humanist meant in uh, the 16th century. Today, humanism is a bad word. Humanism means the belief that man has the ability to determine good and evil for himself without any reference to God or the Bible. In the sixth, Calvin was a humanist with a capital H in the sense that humanism in the 16th century meant the study, the, uh, the, uh, the new study 
of ancient Greek and Hebrew literature. So a humanist was somebody in, that, in, the, in the 16th century. Uh, many reformers were humanists in that they were students of the uh, newly published but ancient Hebrew and Greek uh, books. So he uh, met the famous humanist and Roman Catholic critic of the church, Erasmus, to whom he was deeply attracted for his scholarship, his criticisms of the moral corruption of the church, and his first edition of the Greek New Testament. They became good friends. By the way, Erasmus, who was no reformer at all, he was a Roman Catholic, but he didn't like the moral corruption of Rome, was the man that put together the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts for the King James Version of the Bible later that came out in 1611. And his manuscripts are known as the Textus Receptus. They became good friends, and Erasmus had a strong influence on Zwingli. Erasmus' influence continued on Zwingli all his life, although Zwingli did reject Erasmus' semi-Pelagianism. Zwingli's conversion was gradual. It probably began in Einzeldeln, but it did not come to full expression until he moved to Zurich in 1518. God used several instruments to bring him to conversion. Wittenbach and his planting of gospel seeds into Zwingli's early life. Erasmus, his expose of the church's need for the reform of its abuses and his Greek New Testament. His reading of the early church fathers, particularly his reading of Augustine, who deepened his sense of God's majesty and of the centrality of grace in salvation. Luther and his gospel of justification by faith alone, and Zwingli's own study of the Bible as the all-sufficient authority for all of life and faith in the church and society. Those are the influences that brought Zwingli to conversion. Zwingli gave his testimony, this testimony about the impact of the Bible on him. I have studied the scriptures, but philosophy and theology kept on interrupting me with their quarrelsome voices. At last, guided by the word of God, I thought, you have to move all of these aside and learn the will of God simply from his literal word. Then I prayed God for illumination. And the scriptures became much clearer to me by my simply reading them. More so than when I read many commentaries and explications. I gave a coal miner in southwest Virginia one time a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. And I came back to see him a few months later and I said, Mr. Arrington, how did you like that commentary? He said, oh, Joe, I love that commentary. I'm glad I had the Bible to help me understand it. <laughs> this is a clear indication of God's involvement because with my limited brain, I would never have been able to have come to this point. And so, as Vandervault explains, Zwingli discovered the principle of the Reformation, the Bible explicated by the Bible itself. When the scriptures explain themselves, there is no more need for allegorical exegesis. A man learns the will of God from his literal word. And the clarity and the certainty of the word are open to anybody, even the simplest illiterate. In fact, Zwingli wrote a book entitled in English on the clarity and the certainty of the word of God. Found in Zwingli and Bullinger, translated by G.W. Bromley. By the way, the liberals have produced a series of paperback books. Uh, by these great reformers, I, I don't know why, I guess because of historical curiosity, 
But you can go to some of these liberal bookstores and buy today great books uh, by and on Bootser, uh, Bullinger, Zwingli, and all the rest. In the section of that book entitled, The Clarity of the Word of God, Zwingli exclaims the verse in Matthew 13 that says, For whoever has, to him shall be given, and whoever has not, from him shall be taken away even that he has. The meaning is that he who desires the divine message and has something of the word of God, to him it shall be given. Or better, he who comes to the word of God. This is Vingley. Not bringing his own understanding, but having a mind to learn from the word of God that man already has something. That is, he is not looking to himself, but gives himself wholly to God and to the voice of God. But whoever has not, that is, he who comes to the scriptures with his own opinion and interpretation and rests the scriptures into conformity with it, Do you think that he has anything? No. Failure to believe the word of God is a sure sign that the wrath of God will soon overtake us. The word of God and the messenger of the word are a sweet smell savor, but a savor of life to some and death to others. Illustration. Consider a good strong wine. To the healthy, it tastes excellent. It makes him merry and strengthens him and warms his blood. But if there is someone who is sick of a disease, fever, he cannot even taste it, let alone drink it. And he marvels that the healthy is able to do so. This is not due to any defect in the wine, but to that of the sickness. So too it is with the word of God. It is right in itself and its proclamation is always for good. If then those who are sick cannot bear or understand or receive it, it's because they're sick. When the word of God shines on the human understanding, it enlightens it in such a way that it understands and confesses the word and knows the certainty of it. So now you have some taste of Zwingli's love for the word of God. This rediscovery of the Bible made a reformer of him. This experience of the true illumination grasped him and never let him go. He heard the voice of the loving Christ in scriptures. In comparing Luther's conversion with Zwingli's conversion, we see that Luther's conversion grew out of his urgent desire to be accepted with God. And Zwingli's conversion grew out of his conviction that the Bible's divine, all-sufficient, and comprehensive authority was binding on all Christians. Carlos Ayer has pointed out that whereas Luther's Reformation sprang from a purely religious question... Zwingli's starting point was the social and political distress of his people. Though it may be true that Zwingli's Reformation, so often described as theocratic, aimed at a tighter interweaving of theology and socio-political concerns, this does not mean that it was any less religious. Zwingli's concern over piety and worship, his desire to differentiate between true and false religion, derived principally from theological convictions. For Zwingli and his followers, no less than for Luther and his, the Reformation was above all a religious movement that included concrete social changes. The main difference is that for the Zwinglians, the Reformation decision consisted not so much in finding a just God, but rather in turning away from idolatry to the true God. Zwingli's theology of idolatry became a powerful summons calling evangelicals not just to reevaluate their attachment to a certain kind of piety, 
but to wage war against it. When he began his ministry in Zurich on January the 1st, 1519, on his 35th birthday, Zwingli did a startling thing in that day. He began a systematic exposition of the gospel according to Matthew. Over the next four years, he continued to preach through the New Testament from Matthew to Acts, then to the epistles of Paul and the other New Testament epistles. He preached on several other books with the exception of Revelation. During the week, he preached from the Psalms. His preaching of the Word of God had a supreme influence on him. Then in the autumn of 1520, the plague struck Zurich, killing 2,500 people, or about one-third of the population of the city. Zwingli bravely and perseveringly ministered to the needs of the sick and the dying until the plague struck him. He almost died, but God healed him and made him a new man. A poem he wrote depicts his faith. Help me, O Lord, my strength and rock. Lo, at the door I hear death's knock. Uplift thine arm once pierced for me that conquered death and set me free. Yet if thy voice in life's midday recalls my soul, then I obey. In faith and hope, earth, I resign, secure in heaven, for I am thine. I'm glad he didn't take up a job in writing poetry. Um, Though the content's good. The fact that Zwingli recovered from the plague when many died from it made a deep impression on him. He saw that as a divine seal, uh, saw that as a divine seal set upon his reforming mission to that city. But his life took a more serious turn to the service of Christ with the death of his brother Andrew in November 1520. In 1518, Zwingli was called to be the people's priest in the great minster church in Zurich. In 1522, he began a correspondence with the famous reformer of Basel, Oculampadius. Try saying that fast. These two men became close friends, mutual supporters, and fellow soldiers of the gospel. In 1524, Zwingli married Anna Reinhardt, a widow. And it was also during his time in Zurich that he began his extensive literary labor in defense of the Swiss Reformation. Zurich was the spearhead of Reformation in German-speaking Switzerland and parts of Germany. And Zwingli was the leader of that great movement. In the final years of his life, his focus was on the securing of the ground already won by a system of doctrinal and political alliances. Naturally, he continued his incessant activities as a theologian and pastor, but more and more he had to concern himself with the less congruous affairs of the statesman and diplomat. A direct line can be drawn from Zwingli's Zurich to Calvin's Geneva to the Puritans' England to the Covenanters' Scotland to colonial America to the United States of America. Charles E. Hambrick Stowe has written, Zwingli provides a model of vigorous political involvement. To him, an essential part of the Christian life was the struggle for God's righteousness in the social and civil sphere. He was a thoroughly political pastor and paid the price. At Glarus by losing his pulpit, at Zurich by losing his life. Zwingli's political involvement was in three primary channels. First, he worked to create a common evangelical front within Switzerland itself. And it was in pursuit of this aim that the Christian Civic Alliance was founded and extended. This alliance was based on confessional agreement. The alliance quickly gained strength, but it had the inevitable result of provoking the Catholic cantons to form a rival organization. The existence of these powerful and hostile groups 
made a collision almost inevitable. But when it did come in June 1529, it was the reform side which had the initiative. The Catholic cantons were taken by surprise, and the war ended in an easy victory for the evangelical cause with advantageous, although hotly disputed, terms at the first peace of Capel. To that extent, the civic alliance seemed to have justified itself as a safeguard against internal aggression. In 1529, however, the more serious threat was from outside, for the Diet of Spire had prescribed all evangelical teaching and called for the extirpation of sacramentarian groups. The menace of this situation compelled Zwingli to consider the possibility of some wider union with the Lutheran states. And he welcomed the invitation of Philip of Hesse to participate in preparatory theological discussions with the Lutheran leaders. This conference at Marburg in western Germany was historic. It was an urgent attempt to unite the Lutheran Protestants and the Reformed Protestants doctrinally so they could stand as a united front against the Roman Catholic cantons. It was the only time all the leading reformers came together. Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Ocolampadius, and Bootser. There is a tradition that Luther wrote, this is funny but typical Luther, there, there is a tradition that Luther wrote on the table there at Marburg, in chalk, the words, this is my body, so that he might not weaken from his position on the Lord's Supper. For two days they debated, especially on the Lord's Supper. Zwingli and Ocolampadia so pressed Luther by the ex exegesis of Scripture texts and quotations from the church fathers that finally Luther could answer no more, but pulling the cloth away, on which he had written the words, This is my body from the table. He held it up before them as his vindication. The attendees all agreed on 15 articles of faith, but they could not agree on the Lord's Supper. Luther's inflexibility destroyed the possibility of any real united front coming out of this conference. Zwingli reached out his hand to Luther, but Luther refused it. And so the conference ended five days after it had begun. Cunningham said Luther's refusal to shake hands with Zwingli, which led that truly noble and thoroughly brave man to burst into tears, was one of the most deplorable and humiliating, but at the same time, solemn and instructive exhibitions of the deceitfulness of sin and of the human heart the world has ever witnessed. Zwingli and his alliance were becoming more and more isolated, in the face of the threat of the Roman Catholic Holy Roman Empire. He sought allies, first of all in 1529 with Philip of Hesse, and then with Venice, and in 1530 with France, hoping that by these alliances a way might open up for the wider spread and triumph of the Reformed faith. However, many of these alliances did not work out. Four cities in Switzerland were lost to Zurich in February 1531. The Lutherans were hostile, and the French were suspicious of Zwingli. Zwingli was fearful of an overwhelming invasion by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. The climax came in October 1531 when five forest cantons could stand the strain no longer and invaded the cantonal territory of Zurich. The citizens of Zurich tried to defend themselves, but they were ill-prepared and half-hearted in the venture and their ill-concerted efforts came to a tragic end on the fatal field of Capel, October the 11th. The 8,000 Roman Catholic troops soon defeated the 2,700 in the Zurich army. 
Zwingli was killed in the action, and his death, along with the terms of the second piece of Capel, combined to put a decisive stop to the progress of the Reformation in the German-speaking cantons. The reforming work of Zwingli, the centrality of the preaching of the Word of God in his work. It was the bold and powerful preaching of Zwingli that God primarily used to bring Zurich to Christ and the Reformed faith. In all his political and social involvement, he never forgot that the true secret of Reformation is the winning of the hearts and minds of the people by instructive preaching and teaching in the Word of God. Zwingli did not try to force his way upon the church by legislation. He was willing to wait patiently for the demand for political actions to arise spontaneously from the congregation that would bring legal change to Zurich. It was because the future reforms were all carefully prepared by preaching and instruction that they were carried through with the minimum of opposition and on a solid and durable basis. There were two fundamental principles underlying the whole reforming program. First, that all doctrinal and ecclesiastical questions must be settled in accordance with the teaching or example of Scripture. And second, that a Christian government has both the right and the duty to see that the rulings of Scripture are observed. The most striking feature of the reforming work actually accomplished by Zwingli is perhaps the thoroughness and consistency with which it was carried through. In this respect, a comparison with Luther is particularly illuminating. Luther aimed to purify the church by the proclamation of the Word of God, but he had little or no program of practical reform. And his liturgical and ecclesiastical rearrangements were more in the nature of a concession to circumstances than the fulfillment of a consistent plan. Now Zwingli had the same basic aim as Luther, but for him the purification of the church by the proclamation of the Word of God involved necessarily not merely the revivification of its faith and reconstruction of its doctrine, but the overhauling of every department of ecclesiastical life and practice. Practice as well as doctrine must be tested at every point by the Word of God, and there could be no question of retaining traditional forms or ceremonies simply on the ground that they were not actually forbidden by Scripture. He certainly came to Zurich with the principle which involved his whole program of reform. The principle that the Word of God must be the Supreme Court of Appeal, not merely in matters of faith and ethics, but in all the co-related questions of ecclesiastical practice. It was the inflexible application of that principle which gave to Zwingli's work its consistency and thoroughness. How many of you have been to Zurich? Anybody? Well, you can still see Zwingli's influence to this day in Zurich, Switzerland. When we went to Zurich, you see from a distance uh, the outline of the city and you, saw the, you see these old medieval Roman Catholic cathedrals and churches all over the city. And, but then when you get close to them and you go into them, you're suddenly made aware there's something different here. And so then you realize that in the Middle Ages, all these churches were Roman Catholic but under Zwingli and the Reformers, they were all taken over by the Reformers. There are no crosses, there are no images, there's no statues, there's no nothing but the bare simplicity of architecture in these churches, which architecture is gorgeous. But you still see the impact of Zwingli on the transformation of churches to this day, even though what's preached from the pulpit is terrible. 
Yet Zwingli was not primarily an ecclesiastical statesman, but a preacher of evangelical truth. That is why, fundamentally, the Reformation in Zurich was a doctrinal and spiritual matter rather than a political. The real secret of Zwingli's success was his ability to direct the religious thought of the city from the minster pulpit. Zwingli himself had no doubts concerning the true basis of his work. Reform was possible only as the Word of God was taught and proclaimed. That is why Zwingli was so insistent that there should be an instructed and zealous clergy, for only as the people were taught from Holy Scripture could they see for themselves the falsity of traditional belief and practice and demand and maintain a faith and order conformable with that of the New Testament. Outwardly, the reforming work at Zurich was severely practical, but at bottom, the practical measures were simply an outworking of the inward revolution accomplished by the preaching of the divine word. The emphasis upon preaching involved ultimately an educated laity, which could play a full part in the councils of the church. Zwingli always maintained an ultimate superiority of the true pastorate, for the magistracy had no authority either to break or to exceed the divine word which it was the task of the pastorate to expound and proclaim. The final authority in Zurich was not to be the city council, but Holy Scripture. It was the stress upon Holy Scripture and its authority which determined the character of the liturgical reconstruction carried through at Zurich. It did so in two ways. First, the worship of the church was to conform at all points to scriptural patterns, and second, it was to serve the overriding end of instruction in scriptural truth. Thus, Vingley insisted that all the services should be in the vernacular, not Latin. Again, extraneous and distracting ornaments and ceremonies were ruthlessly suppressed, and all the liturgical forms which remained were plain and simple. Perhaps the greatest testimony of the solidity of Vingley's work is the fact that the radical changes which he made in so short a period not only survived the shock of his own death, but also exercised a wider influence in and through the ever-extending reform communities of the later part of the century. The Church of Zurich never attained to the worldwide prominence and authority of Geneva, but it had good reason for pride and not a little importance as the first example of the Church wholly reformed according to the Word of God. And it was to the pioneer of the reformed tradition that it owed both the fact and form of that Reformation the advance of the Reformation by public disputations. The Reformation of Zurich and other regions of Switzerland Switzerland under Zwingli's ministry came about in a unique way through a series of public disputations. The reformers would petition the civil magistrates in a given city or canton to implement certain reforms of worship and life by the Word of God. The civil magistrates would then call a public meeting or disputation to which were invited Roman Catholic theologians and the reformers. Each was required to defend its position on the matter at hand. The civil magistrates would then decide whether or not the reforms were biblical and should be implemented. In all these disputations, the city councils required that the debate had to be conducted on the basis of the Bible. The first disputation was held on January 29, 1523 in Zurich before an audience of more than 600 people. The reformers easily won the debate, partly because their arguments were grounded solely on the Bible and partly because the Roman Catholic Church had no knowledgeable theologians who could hold their own with the reformers' exegetical, theological, and historical arguments. 
In succeeding disputations, says Hanko, victory followed victory, not only in Zurich, but also in other cantons of Switzerland. Lent was abandoned. Clerical celibacy was declared unbiblical. The Bible was translated into the vernacular. Images, pictures, and relics were removed from the churches. The churches were severed from the control of the papacy. The monasteries were dissolved. Fasting was prohibited. The mass was replaced. The Lord's Supper was held at regular intervals. Discipline was established under the control of the office bearers in the churches. And biblical preaching was ordered in all the churches. In addition to his reforming work, three important events took place in Zwingli's life in Zurich. The first was his marriage to Anna Reinhardt, a widow with children. It is clear from Zwingli's letters that his home life was a happy one and that his wife was a faithful help to him in his years of work in the church. The second was his controversy with the Anabaptists, who were seen as serious threats to the well-being of the Reformation and the security of society. As we have seen, the Anabaptists were radicals opposed to the authority of the church and state and committed to setting up the kingdom of heaven in Europe in the 16th century. As a result, Zwingli and the other reformers vigorously opposed them. The civil government banished many of them, imprisoned them, and in some instances executed them. Hanko says, as always, God uses the struggles and trials of the church for good. Though Anabaptism was a serious threat to the Reformation, it was the immediate occasion for the Swiss reformers to begin the development of covenant theology. In defense of the truth of infant baptism over against Anabaptism, the great truth of the covenant was set forth by Zwingli and later by other Swiss theology, a theologian such as Henry Bullinger. We who so deeply cherish the truth of the covenant do not look in the first place to Calvin as our spiritual father in this doctrine, but to Zwingli and the Swiss who worked with him. The third important event in Zwingli's life was the Marburg Colloquy, held in Marburg, Germany in 1529. We've already discussed this event. It took place because of the threat of a united Roman Catholicism and the armies of Charles V, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. The Elector of Saxony and the Landgrave of Hesse wanted to unite all Protestant both Lutherans and the Reformed in a common front. It did not take long before it was obvious that this common front was an empty dream because of Luther's inflexibility. Behind all of Zwingli's work were the two pillars on which his entire worldview was built, the supremacy of the revelation of God in the Bible and the sovereignty of God in predestination and grace. The truth that the will of the sovereign God is the cause of all things necessarily involved for Zwingli a vigorous, a rigorous doctrine of the divine predestination and election. For all that is good in man derives from God, and faith itself is possible only where God himself has sovereignly decreed to give it. Zwingli could not possibly explain predestination as a mere foreknowledge of belief or unbelief. On the contrary, it is a free determination of the divine will concerning those who are to be saved. This determination is the true source of all the redemptive activity of God. For in fulfillment of it, God provides everything which is necessary for the salvation of the elect. It was because of this tremendous stress upon the divine initiative and sovereignty that Zwingli was compelled to protest violently against the existing theory and practice of Christianity. 
It was not merely that the medieval system was contrary to the New Testament norm, although that in itself was a valid point and one which Zwingli consistently made. But at a deeper level, the medieval system rested upon semi-Pelagian presuppositions, which were in direct contrast with the evangelical doctrine of Holy Scripture. For if salvation is by election and grace, even if faith itself is a direct work of God by the Holy Spirit, then there can be no place for schemes of religious life or thought which allow either for the merit of human works or for the ex opera operato efficacy of sacramental observances, says Bromley. Along with all the other reformers, Zwingli held to and taught the solas, sola gratia, solo Christo, sola fide, sola scriptura, soli deo gloria. This means also that influenced by Luther, Zwingli believed in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Zwingli also emphasized the importance of the true church. Bromley writes, the invisible church always does express itself in external organization. For the people of God all belong to visible communities consisting of all those who make outward profession of the Christian faith. Insofar as true believers belong to the invisible church and the visible, there is a real identity between the two. But insofar as the visible church includes professors who are not true believers, there is a distinctness. The marks of the visible church are the three external ones, the preaching of the word of God, the due administration of two sacraments, and church discipline. You see, Zwingli had three before Calvin had two. Although the supreme influence on Zwingli's thinking and living was the word of God, we can see some traces of the remaining influence of Erasmus humanism infecting his theology. Now, I guess I mean humanism in the bad sense there. In the way he wrote about doctrines, in his belief that the electing grace of God is to be seen in even pagan thought and life, he argued that several of the writers of pagan classical thought, such as Hercules, Socrates, and Seneca, had a clear knowledge of God obtained not by reason, but by revelation. And therefore he believed that some of the ancient Greek philosophers were recipients of regeneration and are to be counted among the elect, even though they know nothing of Christ and his gospel. He also believed that all children everywhere who die in infancy are included in the number of the elect. After pointing out this theological weakness in Zwingli, it must be carefully observed, says Cunningham, that he never meant to teach that men may be saved by framing their lives according to the light of nature and the law of the religion they profess. On the contrary, he constantly taught that men, if saved at all, were saved only on the ground of Christ's atonement and by the operation of God's grace. But he thought without any scriptural warrant that the benefits of Christ's death might be imparted to men and that their natures might be renewed by God's agency, even though they were not acquainted with any external supernatural revelation. And that some of the heathen did manifest such moral excellence as to indicate the presence of God's special gracious agency. The truth of the matter is that scripture truly, truly reveals to us and clearly reveals to us that the general provision which God has made for saving men individually from their natural guilt and depravity is by communicating to them through the medium of an external revelation and impressing upon their hearts by his spirit some knowledge of the only way of salvation through a redeemer 
and a sacrifice. And this truth, solemn and awful as it is, we are bound to receive as the ordinary rule of our opinions and practice, abstaining from all unwarranted speculations and resting satisfied in the assurance that the judge of all the earth will do right. As one has said, the theology of Zwingli was a magnificent first attempt to restate Christian doctrine in a consistent evangelical and scriptural form. The central issue regarding the Lord's Supper in the 16th century was the nature of the presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, especially in relation to his ascension and session at God's right hand. The three unbiblical explanations of that issue that Zwingli had to refute were the traditional Roman Catholic interpretation, that of the Renaissance, and that of the Lutherans. The traditional Roman view of the words, this is my body, imply that the bread literally becomes the crucified body of Christ, hence transubstantiation. The Renaissance view was that the bread becomes not the crucified, but the resurrected and glorified physical body of Christ. The Lutheran view was that the bread remained bread and the wine remained wine, but the body of Christ is in, with, and under the communion bread and wine. Zwingli held that all these views were based on a misunderstanding of the true nature of the sacrament, and further than the Lutheran view, further that the Lutheran view was illogical and self-contradictory, for it makes the phrase, this is my body, really mean, this is my bread and my body. Zwingli had two main points to make on this issue. First, a correct exegesis of John 6 makes clear that faith is the true feeding upon Christ. And second, that the Bible's doctrine of the ascension of Christ destroys all possibility of a literal presence of Christ's physical body in communion. Zwingli refuted the Lutheran view that the perfections of Christ's divine nature, including ubiquity, are imparted to his present, his human nature. Hence, his physical body is omnipresent, they said. He refuted the Renaissance view that after the resurrection and glorification of Christ, his physical body is no longer subjected to the ordinary limitations of time and space. He refuted the Lutheran view by the suffering and death of Christ, for although the person who suffered and died was also God, he did not suffer in his deity but in his humanity, otherwise God died, which is impossible. And against the Renaissance view, he explained that it would prove not only the ubiquity of Christ's resurrected body, but also the ubiquity of all resurrected people. Zwingli's refutation of these views was primarily exegetical. He spent much effort proving that the phrase, this is my body, was clearly figurative or symbolical and not literal, and the three false views as the three false views claimed. In refuting the false doctrine of the physical presence of Christ in the sacrament, Zwingli had no intention of denying the spiritual presence of Christ in his divine nature, which means that the sacrament is more than a bare and empty sign. Uh, Zwingli has gotten a bad press, as we're going to see. People say that Zwingli's doctrine of the Lord's Supper was far weaker than Calvin's in that Calvin believed there was a spiritual presence of Christ and uh, Zwingli did not. He, he believed it was an empty sacrament that you're blessed by it by remembering. Uh, we're going to see that, that, uh, that's, that, that is not true. Zwingli had no intention of denying the spiritual presence of Christ in his divine nature, which means that the sacrament is more than a bare and empty sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the body and blood of Christ offered up for us, and that is why it, it, it is called a sacrament. 
This means that it's more than a mere reminder of the death of Christ. Because in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we do not have merely the visible elements of bread and wine. We have the spiritual presence of Christ himself and the sovereign activity of the Holy Spirit. But it also means that the elements of bread and wine in and of themselves are nothing more than a representative of the adaptation of the body and blood of Christ. This is my body, therefore means for Zwingli, this represents my body. He refused to assert a literal identity between the sign and the thing signified. A couple of criticisms can be made of Zwingli's doctrine of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Although his treaty on the subject, on the Lord's Supper, does, does give us a clear and forceful statement of his doctrine. And then you'll have to study all these yourself. Uh, it, it's worth the study, but we don't have time to go into it. Uh, page 373. However, it was left to John Calvin to complete the doctrine of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And there you have Calvin's uh, completion of it. Uh, 375. First full paragraph. Calvin was convinced that Zwingli shared his view of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. With reference to the confession called Consensus Tigurinus, which set forth the fundamental principles of the Lord's Supper and the presence of Christ held in common by the churches of Geneva and of Zurich, as represented by Calvin and Bullinger, Zwingli's successor, Calvin declared, If Zwingli and Ocolampadius, these most excellent and illustrious servants of Christ, were not alive, were now alive, they would not change a word in it. Four themes from the Zurich theology, Zwingli and Bullinger, can be seen in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. F. Busser writes, singular perspicuity, great plainness, ever popular facility, are characteristic of the four themes from the Zurich theology, which are, in my opinion, to be found in the theology of Calvin's Institutes. Zwingli and Bullinger supplied Calvin with two decisive factors for the development of his systematic summary of the Christian faith. They also furnished him with the basic arguments for his controversies with the main opponents of the Reformation, the Anabaptists who raised the problem of the civil government's role in society and of Rome, which involved a defense of the principle of the authority of Scripture. And then I deal with the Zurich theology and Calvin's systematic summary of the Christian faith. Secondly, the Zurich theology and covenant theology. Let me read that. Second, Zwingli and Bullinger furnished Calvin with the basic principles and presuppositions of covenant theology. This is particularly true of Bullinger's influence on Calvin, which we'll study next hour. Zwingli, Ocolampadius, William Tyndall, Bootser, and Bullinger all made the covenant of grace a substantive element in theology. Furthermore, their conception of the covenant was advanced by Ursinus and Olivianus, the Heidelberg Reformers, and by Robert Rolock in Scotland. The full development of the covenant theology came only in the 17th century and was expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 and in the influential work of John Cockius. The following two facts are of importance. First, Reformed covenant theology as such had its origin in Zurich. And it is to be taken as certain that Calvin knew the relevant Zurich sources. 
Third, we see the Zurich theology and Calvin's arguments against the Anabaptists. And then fourth, the Zurich theology and, Cal- and its influence on Calvin's arguments against Roman Catholicism. Now, I dare not read the next five pages. You wouldn't be able to understand a word I said. Because I'd be crying throughout the whole thing. But tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to read this great account of Zwingli's death. And I'll conclude with this little legend. Turn to page 383. Well, let me quote Daubigny in the paragraph before. Zwingli was dead. A great light had been extinguished in the church of God. Mighty by the word as were the other reformers, he had been still mightier than they in action. Zwingli was uh, not 48 years old when he died. If the might of God always accompanied the might of man, what would he not have done for the Reformation in Switzerland and even in the empire? After Zwingli's death, a legend grew up in Switzerland. Now they, they dismembered Zwingli in his death, cut him up. After Zwingli's death, a legend grew up in Switzerland that his heart would not die. After being wounded on 11 October 1531 at the Battle of Capel, the Roman soldiers discovered him and killed him. His last words, they can kill my body but not my soul, can in a sense be said to have been realized according to the tradition. His body was cut to pieces and burnt by the enemy, but when it was finally found by his compatriots, his heart was untouched. Even though this might be a legend, it is still true that Zwingli's spirit, that for which he worked and struggled, could never die. This fact has been engraved on the tablets of history eradicably.